to Philippians in chapter 2. I want to read verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would help us uh, not only see this, uh, these words on a page with our eyes, but understand them. And not only understand them with our minds, which we must, but Father, I pray that you would penetrate them uh, deep into our hearts to encourage us, to motivate us, to work in us, that your will and your work, that which pleases you, would be accomplished. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I want to set this with three preliminary points. And I do that because in the history of the interpretation of this passage, sometimes I think... Uh, we miss Paul's point, um, and I don't want us to, and so I want to set these three things out, and then we'll move on from there. But these three, I think we need to understand, uh, and else we miss Paul's point, because on the one hand, I think we apply this very often too individualistically, that is, we apply it to each individual Christian, and I don't think that's Paul's primary point, it's one of them, but I think his primary point is to apply it to the church collectively and then secondly i think often we can misunderstand this passage in uh, because it speaks to us about working and that may be confusing to us and so i want to set out three points to begin and then once we got that then i think we can get through it and understand uh, paul's point and really apply it then in the context of our own church and even in the context of our own lives the first point i want to make uh, is this that the little word that begins verse 13, and my translation is the word for, you might have because, is very significant. Because Paul begins by saying, uh, in the middle of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, and so you have to understand that what's to follow the for sets the foundation for what he's just said. All right? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know that in English, verbs are like teenagers. They have moods. And there is... I just I just lost 20% of the audience. Um, <laughs> they would admit it, I think. Uh, but... Um, and the rest of us, too. But there is an indicative and an imperative. And in, the indicative mood is a statement, a verb that states a fact. It's a statement of fact. Something... That is true, and the imperative, of course, is a command. And here Paul has both. He has an imperative and then an indicative. He has a command that says, work out your salvation. 
with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. And so the, the first one is the imperative, the second is the indicative. However, theologically and logically, the indicative is to come first. In fact, it does. That's why Paul uses the little word for. He begins because I think what he really wants to tell them is to work out their salvation. That's really his point. But so as not to be confused and not to be misunderstood, so he's not saying work for your salvation or work so that you can receive salvation. He says work out your salvation for because that salvation has already been worked into you. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's saying God has done something, now work that out. Always the indicative, theologically and logically, in the life of a Christian, precedes the imperative. In fact, so much so that Paul actually plays off of that logically to say this is what God has done, therefore, doesn't it just make sense that you should live in this particular way? He doesn't have to appeal to law. He doesn't have to appeal to guilt. He simply has to appeal to what God has already done in us. Like if you read through the book of Romans, you find Paul doing just that. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, that we've been justified by faith, and now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has done something. He's saved us. He's justified us. He's declared us righteous. All on the basis of his grace, and we receive it through faith. So someone might ask, someone might make the statement, that's great grace that God has saved us by faith, not by our own works. And of course, the answer is yes, it is great grace. But then someone else may come along and say, well... If it's great grace comes because of our sin, then shouldn't we keep on sinning so that God's great grace would continue to abound? And if I may paraphrase Paul, he responds in chapter 6, verse 1 by saying, that's dumb. <laughs> All right, that's what he says. He says, no, you're not getting it. Because you see that justification and our receiving it by faith is evidence of a work of God already in us to work in our own wills, to change our wills from being against him to being for him. We once, the Bible says, were dead in trespasses and sins, which means we were separated from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive again in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace we are saved through faith. It was God who made us alive. And so Paul's argument always is from the indicative, he made us alive, therefore now act like it. So he appeals really to logic. He says, this is who you now are, so now act like it, work that out. God has worked it in, now you work that out. He's changed your will, enabling you then to follow him. So now follow him because of what God has done. We know that change of will in the life of an individual Christian. Jeremiah speaks of it by saying that when the new covenant comes, God will write his law upon our hearts. And again, by that he means he will make our hearts receptive to the very desires of God. He will write his law upon our hearts. Yes. Ezekiel says it like this, that he'll take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He will put a new spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. First, the indicative. First, the statement of fact. God has taken out your heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh and he's put a new spirit within you so that you can walk in his ways. 
And so when he appeals by saying, giving us the command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he wants us to understand that it's God who's worked it in. Now let's work it out. This isn't a salvation by works. It's a salvation by grace through faith. But saved now, get on with it. Work it out. Go after it because of what God has done. Right? That's the first point. But that's very important because not only is this a working of God into us individually as Christians, but also corporately. And that's my second point that I have to make if we're going to understand this. Because the your and the you in this passage work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. Those pronouns are plural. If Paul were a southerner, he would put it, if he were a precise southerner, that is to say, if he were, he wouldn't simply say, work out y'all's salvation. Because y'all in the south can mean one or more. You can walk up to a person and see them and say, hi, how y'all doing? And that just means, how are you, one individual person? If there are three people, you could say, how y'all doing? And it means the whole, each one of them individually. But if a southerner wants to refer to a group of people, the southerner uses this pronoun, all y'all. <laughs> so if Paul were writing as a southerner, he would say, work out all y'all's salvation. With fear and troubling, because it's God is at work in all y'all. To will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning, what's here isn't simply a promise that says God's at work in each of you individually, which he is, changing your will and working out in you. But he's also working in the church. And I think, as we'll see in a minute, that's Paul's real point here. To the church in Philippi. He's really concerned. He's really saying to them, you know, God has saved you, church. He's worked his will in you already. And that's evidence of that is his, is this salvation which you've experienced. He's worked that in you. His will has been accomplished in your life by his work. He's already willed and worked in your lives for his good pleasure. And the evidence of that is that you're saved. Now church, all y'all, work that out. So as a group, collectively, Work out this salvation that God has worked into all y'all. Okay? It's important to see that because this isn't just a verse that helps us in our own individual, if you understand this term, our own individual sanctification, our own individual maturity. It is a promise for that, I suppose, but that's just assumed here. I think what Paul's real point is here is a word to the church. And if you're concerned about I don't know how else to say it except like this. If you're concerned about the success of the church in the world, don't be. Because God has made a promise that he's at work through the church in Philippi, through the church to will and to work for his good pleasure, that is to say. That through the church of Jesus Christ, through all those he saved, through all y'all, that his will is going to be accomplished through his work which will bring him pleasure. Okay? First point, the imperative is based on the indicative. Second point is that this is about the whole church. The third point is that what Paul's really concerned about in this passage is the gospel. 
his primary emphasis here isn't simply on individual Christians being saved and growing up in the Lord. That's important, and we can find that all over the Bible. And if, and, and if you said to Paul, that's what I get out of this, he'd say, that's fine, but there's something else. But at least get that. But I think what he's really after here is something about the gospel, because that's been, been, been building throughout this whole letter. That's his emphasis. Notice, all the way back, review very quickly with me. Uh, chapter 1, again, in verse 5. Uh, Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel, he says, what's great about you, Philippians, what's really, what's really uh, solidifies our relationship is the fact that we're partners in the gospel. This isn't just a casual relationship. This isn't based on some activity that we like to do. This isn't based on some book that we've read precisely. This is based on the gospel. Our, our relationship, what holds us together, where we're partners is in the gospel. That's what's important. And then, of course, in verse 7, he says, uh, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, he says we're partners. You exist. I exist. We're partners in this relationship for the defense of the gospel. We defend it and we confirm it. We show it to be true by our very lives. That's what holds us together. That's what we talk about when we're together. That's what we write about in these letters. And then, of course, in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, he's in prison, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What he's, in, he's interested in is the gospel advancing. In verse 18, when, when there are people who are preaching, uh, making Paul's life more difficult, actually, even though they're preaching the truth, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. He's saying what's really important is that Christ be proclaimed. That is, what's really important is the gospel. And then when he speaks to them individually, in verse, or as, as a group, he speaks to them and not of himself, in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What I'm concerned about, church, is that you're living as citizens of the kingdom of God and showing the worth of the gospel by your very lives. And the way that you do that, he says, is collectively. The way that you do that is by standing firm in one spirit, striving together with one mind and not being afraid. He says that's how you show the worth of the gospel. Because the testimony of the gospel, the testimony that the gospel is true, isn't simply on the basis of the testimony of one. But it's on the basis of the fact that the church exists, that God has done what he said he was going to do, and that is that he wasn't going to just save one, but he was going to make one new man out of the two, that both from Jew and Gentile, he was going to form a people, a community of people, a nation of people. And the very existence of the church, you see, is evidence that the gospel is true. It isn't simply on the testimony of one. When we all come together, this is just an aside, but when we all come together and we sing the truth of God, that is a more powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel than one person standing here and telling how he or she got saved. Because it's the existence of all of us together that proves the truth of the gospel, not simply the testimony of one. Testimony of one is great and all that. But it's the whole, all of us together. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, verse 14. The, the, the purpose of Christ to make the two into one through the cross. That all of us together with the same Father and access 
to him through Christ. So Paul, you see here, is concerned about the gospel. And how is it then that we stand firm together with one mind? We must have the mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is to obey the Father in humility and that obedience shows itself in self-sacrificial love, putting the interests of others above the interests of oneself. That's the very love of Christ which he shows. And then you'll notice too in this passage itself in verse 15, we move down to where uh, Paul's concern is to say about them, you shine as lights in the world. That's what he's really after. He's really after this group of people not shining as just one little night light over here, but all together shining as lights. All these lights brought together so that the world can see the truth of the gospel. So, we sum up those three points so we can get on to this. This command that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is made to the group, to the church in Philippi. And it's made on the basis of the fact that Paul has said, God has already worked in you his will and his work. And the evidence of that is your salvation. Now together, work that out. And as you work that out, what that means is that you're going to be defending, confirming, advancing the gospel as lights in the context of this world. Now the good news of that is that we know that the work of the church will succeed. It cannot be overcome. So if you're a Sunday school teacher and you're struggling, is this worth it? If you're a person who um, identifies with the church of Jesus Christ and you're witnessing of your faith, is it worth it? Yes. Because you belong to the church. You belong to the group. And all of us together, you see, are evidence of the truth of the gospel. And as we light together, then the community sees that. And God's promise is that he's at work and it's his will and it's his work that's serving his good pleasure. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to work this out with fear and trembling. And I don't think that means that we should be afraid if we're not doing this. I think we should, but I don't think that's Paul's point. That's my point. You can take that for what it's worth. But Paul's point is that we need to take this very seriously because God takes it very seriously. Turn to Acts in chapter 20. This is an account of Paul meeting with some elders from Ephesus, and he describes the church and what God thinks of the church here. It's Acts chapter 20 uh, and verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That is to God the value, the worth of the church. He's saying he obtained you, he bought you, he purchased you, he got you with his own blood. And so Paul is saying to these elders, watch out, be very careful. As you do what you do in the context of the church, do it seriously, do it with fear and trembling. Because these people, this church, has been bought with the blood of Christ. It's very significant, it's very important to him. In fact, 
the glory of God rests in this blood-bought church. In fact, Jesus says it a bit differently. And we have it in Mark in chapter 9 and verse 42. Jesus says this, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He's saying, listen, I care deeply about these people. I care deeply about this church. I care deeply about these ones who believe in me. I care deeply about these ones whom I've bought. So don't mess with them. Don't cause them to stumble. Because if you do, I'll take action. That's the seriousness. And so Paul is saying, listen, church in Philippi. Listen, church in Lawrence. Listen, Grace EPC. Take this seriously. Work out your salvation. God has brought salvation by his will and his work into our lives. And now he says, work that out in such a way that people see it. That it's a light in the community. So how is it then that we work out that salvation? Well, I think initially the word that comes to mind from this passage is we obey by obedience, by our obedience to God through Christ. Because you see, that's the context here. When Paul is speaking of Christ in Philippians 2, he speaks uh, about his obedience. Notice in verse 8, in speaking of Christ, he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient Obedient. There it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 12, as he speaks to them, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. That is to say, keep on obeying. Keep on showing that you belong to God through Christ. Keep on obeying. Keep on doing the things that, that please God, that are in your heart, really, by his Spirit, to do, keep doing those things. See, we mustn't form this false dichotomy between Jesus being our Savior and Jesus being the Lord. Because there is no division between the two. Because He is the Lord who is the Savior and the Savior who is the Lord. He isn't one or the other. And on any given day, we simply can't grab at one and not the other. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. In fact, because he's the Lord, it means he can save us because he can overcome sin and death, because he can conquer sin and death. And because he's a Savior, doesn't that make him a sweet Lord? We obey the very one who gave himself for us. That's why Paul, as he begins this whole section, refers to the church. He says, my beloved, the very ones I love, but yet on behalf of Christ, the very ones loved by Christ because it's this Savior who is our Lord, this very one who bought us. He's the one we obey and we follow. In fact, in the scripture, uh, Jesus is referred to Savior only in in, in just a, a few number of cases, 16 or 18 cases. But he's referred to as Lord in about 900 cases. And so just do the math. That's who he is. And thus, when he comes, even as he does, Luke has for us in Luke in chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus looks at the throng of people and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do the things which I say? And so he saved us. His will has been worked in us. His work has been done in us uh, that we may work out this salvation in obedience to him. In fact, that's exactly what he desires. For instance, Uh, In Ephesians, in chapter 2 and verse 10, we read this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared uh, beforehand that we should walk in them. He's, he's prepared them, now walk in them. He's done it, so do it, you see. In Titus, in chapter 2, uh, Paul writes to Titus this, and uh, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's all that he's done. And here's the purpose. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is, obey, get on with it. He's worked in you. Now work it out. Not only individually, but with this corporate consciousness. All together, the people of God, to work that out. Now notice then what he says in the working that out. Because if you come to this passage, you say, well, what's it mean then to obey God at this point? And what does it mean for all of us corporately to work out our salvation in such a way that we become lights in this wicked and cruel generation? He says this in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. I don't know that that's what I would have said. I don't know exactly what I would have said if I had the opportunity, but I'm not, I don't know if that's exactly what would have been the most important thing on my mind, but it certainly was in the church in Philippi. Somehow, they were grumbling a lot. And you know, God doesn't like grumbling. You might remember in the Old Testament, when after the Israelites had left Egypt and gone through the Red Sea, seeing God do that great miracle to to save them from slavery and then get them through the Red Sea and protect them from Pharaoh's army and all of that, a great miracle. They get to a place where they don't have any food and so they begin to grumble against Moses. But Moses is smart enough to know they're really not grumbling against him. They're really grumbling against God because it's God who's leading them. And they, they don't want to do that, so they grumble against Moses, but it's really against God. And so God comes, you remember, and he says, Stop your grumbling and your murmuring. I like the word murmur because you, you think of that about a million people going murmur, murmur, You just feel it as like. God gives them manna from heaven. And you might say, what is it? And yes. Manna means what is it? But um, uh, nobody knew. It, was just, it just was. And, but it was nourishing and it was sweet. But then they began to complain that they didn't have any meat and so he sent them quail with a little twist. I'll let you read that part of the story. But, but they were grumbling and it wasn't pleasing at all to God. But this isn't even grumbling against God because that's ultimately where it is. It's against God. But this is people in the context of the church grumbling and questioning each other. And the questioning isn't just sort of questions of inquiry like how are you or what are you thinking or what do you believe. But, but they're questions that lead to arguments. They're nitpicking over this and that, over things that aren't essential or things that aren't important. They're questioning motives to the degree that it's causing one person to begin to fight against another person. It's this notion of selfishness, that I'm doing more than you're doing, or what I'm doing is more important than what you're doing. And therefore, you get this grumbling amongst the people of God. And God hates that. And I can say this because I've said this to my own children, but and they know this, but but probably one of the most disheartening things to me as a parent is if my children aren't getting along. It just troubles me. 
and they're smart enough at least to get along when they're around me. Uh, and I trust when I'm not. But I believe that's very troubling to God. And it really dishonors him and shows poorly of him when his own children can't get along with each other. And I think Paul is speaking to that. If you want to shine like lights, church, church, stop grumbling towards each other. Stop complaining. Stop picking on each other. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Love each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. Accept each other. After all, Jesus humbled himself. And of all people who didn't need to humble himself, it was Jesus. I mean, Jesus reigned supreme. He had every right to the things he cast aside. We don't. We're just other sinners, one to another. How is it that we can grumble against another so easily? Of course, that doesn't mean that we can't help each other in disciplined situations, and we can't come to each other when there are particular issues and needs. All of that's true. He said, don't come in this negative sense of me better than you. You remember the situation with uh, Peter. as uh, After the resurrection, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and Peter looks over and sees the apostle John, <clears throat> and he says to Jesus, what about him? How's he going to die? And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter, every mother knows this because you've said this a thousand times to your children. I don't really care what happens to them. What I'm talking to you about is what's going to happen to you. And that's the point, you see. You know, the great 80-20 rule in churches where 20% of the people do 80% of the work is probably true. So what? Deal with it. If you're part of the 20% doing it, don't complain about the 80% that aren't. A, it won't help the 80%. And B, what would happen to your life if God ever took you away from what you're doing? It probably wouldn't hurt the church. We're all replaceable. But it would hurt you. Because your work in the kingdom is your very life. Let God deal with the 80%. Don't grumble about them. Love them. Serve them. So they don't have to do anything. And then they just might. But love them. Don't. Now, we've had a no-bickering rule in our church from the very beginning, uh, which goes like this. I probably shouldn't say this now. I could get away with this ten years ago. But it was, if you like to bicker and complain, there are other churches. I've always thought it'd be a great ministry of a pastor to come into a community and say, okay, I'll take all the complainers to send them to me. Sort of like a church timeout. <laughs> and you could say, okay, go there. That's fine. And then to sort of quarantine that part of the church over there so nobody sees it. Because you see, that's not the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ as children of God. Because you notice how important it is. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless, that is, above reproach, that is. When people look at you, they can't speak poorly of Christ. I pray all the time and I hope you do too, that our church, this particular company of people, that our church would do nothing that would publicly embarrass Christ. Because you see, it's one thing for one person or another person to do something that besmirches the name of Christ. But when it's a church, and it affects the very fiber of the church, it's very disgraceful to Christ. 
And we are to be above reproach. People are to be able to look at our church and look at us and say, those are people who love each other. Those are people who get along with each other. Those are people who don't complain about each other. When you're out in the community, those are people, when they speak of Grace EPC, they speak positive things. One of the greatest blessings in my life is I think we are a positive, truth-speaking, lovers of each other church, not a complaining, grumbling church. One of the great blessings for me is when I ask someone why they're coming here, why they began to come here, and they tell me where well, I work with somebody who speaks so well of this church. You understand that's not a prideful thing. You understand that's a necessary thing if we're to be lights in the community. It does the church of Jesus Christ, it does the glory of God, it does the gospel no good when Christians complain about their churches. We need to be above reproach. And he says innocent, that is pure on the inside, that is really a lover of the church of God. Because you see, if you're not really a lover of the church of Christ, if it doesn't grieve you when you hear complaints about the church, if that doesn't grieve you, then you're not one who's going to be able to be kept from grumbling. But you see, he says, if you're not grumbling, then you're blameless, above reproach, as other people see it. And your heart is pure. And then he says, the most important of all, innocent children of God without blemish that is spotless before God. Lovers of the church of Christ are those who are spotless before God. And he says, because you're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, which is to say, if you live like this, you'll really stick out. They will never have seen anything like this before. Crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That's what we have. We, collectively, all y'all, hold fast the word of life. And there is no other word of life. And no one else has it but the church. And we don't have it because we're better than everyone else. We have it because God has worked his will and work in us for his good pleasure, that we have it. And so he's saying, what you have is the word of life. You have, we have, what everyone else needs and can be found no other place. There's no other place, no other community of people that talks about the cross, that talks about the need for atonement, that talks about believing in Jesus, that talks about the truth of Christ. This is what everyone needs. He says, you hold fast to that. So work this salvation out with fear and trembling, understanding what you have in your very hands, understanding what you have in your very minds, understanding what you have in your very hearts, understanding what you have in your lives. Don't take this for granted. Don't take this lightly. Don't forget that you have this. Live your whole life with fear and trembling. You hold the word of life. And it is that, Peter writes, 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This word of God is alive. It's alive. And it works in you, the very will of God. And it works in you, the very work of God that is according to his good pleasure. Understand we have that and live our lives. We must live our lives 
with fear and trembling, cautiously, if you will, seriously, if you will, because that's what we have. Now again, the great promise for me, and I, I must confess, as a churchman, as one for whom the church really is my life, I live on this verse 13, that it is God who is at work in us. the Church of Jesus Christ, and Grace EPC, and that he work will work in us his will and do his work for his good pleasure, we will succeed. We won't be overcome because it's his work in us. And I wonder, how dare we not live as light Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is true. So in good days and bad, on encouraging days and discouraging ones, on days where I see it and days where we don't, we will trust that you've worked your will and your work in us. And Father, we will believe and act like we believe on good days and bad, days when we see it and days when we don't, days when we're encouraged and days when we're not, to work out that salvation by in faith obeying Christ. In humility, self-sacrificial love for each other, we won't grumble and question, pick, but rather holding firm and fast the word of life. We pray that you would enable us to shine as lights in this world that Christ may be seen and his gospel shown to be true. We pray this with great confidence because we believe it to be your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, remind you that... uh, Elders are available to pray in the office area, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is, is Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. Again, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saying, it's mine then, this salvation that this Lord has worked in me, it's mine then to work it out, fear and trembling. And I will do that by not grumbling or questioning, but rather shining as a light in this world. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.